Father in heaven, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father, for this morning's worship. And Lord, as we uh, continue in worship by studying your word, speak to our hearts. First in Jesus' awesome name, I pray. All God's people said, amen. Amen. You may have a seat. You know, that's what it's all about. Serving Christ, loving Christ, obeying Christ, and living for him. Being led by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit, you know, if, if you are in Christ, the Holy Spirit has come inside of your heart and he's ruling and reigning. And not only does he want to save you, which he has done if you've received him as your Lord and Savior, but he wants to lead you in life. He wants to lead you and guide you. I hope you've been blessed by our journey through the Gospel of Matthew. We, we're, we've been in it for one year. <clears throat> and uh, we are in the final week of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, historically, we're on... We're looking at Monday, the, day, the Monday before his crucifixion this morning. And I anticipate about, probably about two months, two months of looking at this final week of uh, the Lord Jesus' life, the week leading up to his crucifixion. So if you would, please turn in your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. I'm going to teach this morning Matthew chapter 21, verses 18 through 46, but let's look at the first five or six verses and look at the direction God's word is taking us in our study this morning. Because that's what this time is. It's me teaching, leading a Bible study and getting into God's word. So let's pray one more time and ask the Holy Spirit to minister to our hearts as we look into his word. Lord, we love you and we praise you. Holy Spirit, teach us this morning as we look at your word. Lead us, guide us, and direct us. First in Jesus' mighty name I pray, amen. Matthew chapter 21, verse 18. Now in the morning as he returned to the city, he was hungry, talking about Jesus. And seeing a fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it but leaves and said to it, let no fruit grow on you ever again. Immediately the fig tree withered away. And when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither away so soon? So Jesus answered and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to this fig tree, but also if you say to this mountain, that's important, if you say to this mountain, be moved and cast into the sea, it will be done. And whatever things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. Lord, again, thank you for your word as we study it now. Open our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So the title of my sermon this morning is In the Vineyard of Obedience. If you like agricultural language, if you like farm language and country language, you're going to love the teaching this morning because it's deep and rich in agricultural language. Uh, a vineyard, as, as I said, a vine, the, in the vineyard of God's obedience uh, a vineyard is an orchard where fruit trees are grown and harvested, filled with workers who plant, trim, and harvest the fruit. It's a lot of hard work for them. The soil has to be maintained. Branches have to be trimmed. If the vineyard workers don't do their job properly, they can lose their crops. And here's the deal, family. It's the exact same way with Christianity, okay? It's the exact same way with us serving the Lord in God's kingdom. You and I have to work God's vineyard. The life of the vineyard hinges on our obedience 
to his word. It's not just enough to give God lip service or mental assent to truth. We must, led by the Holy Spirit, put our hands to the plow and serve in the vineyard with obedient hearts. So my hope and my prayer this morning as as you leave here today is that you see your service to the Lord in this life as you working in the vineyard. This is God's world, okay? It's not the world's world, okay? God owns this world. God owns this planet. Psalms chapter 24, verse 1 says, The earth is the Lord's, the fullness thereof, and all those who dwell in it. It is his vineyard, and his kingdom is here on this earth through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we are called to work in that vineyard. So with that said, let's dive into verse 18. Verse 18 says, Now in the morning, as he returned to the city, he was hungry. Now, y'all remember, if you remember last week's message, uh, he's, this is Monday before the crucifixion. What happened on Sunday? The triumphal entry and Jesus cleansing the temple. Okay, so this is the very next morning that Jesus is coming back into Jerusalem. And notice it says he was hungry. I I love that. I love that the word of God includes these phrases that show the humanity of Christ. That he was hungry. That he wept. That he he lived a real life just like you and I did. Except his life was sinless and perfect. He lived the perfect life that you and I couldn't live. But he lived it. He lived it. He walked the face of this earth for 33 years. Verse 19. And seeing a fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it but leaves and said to it, let no fruit grow on you ever again. Immediately, the fig tree withered away. Okay, so again, it's Monday morning. He's returning to Jerusalem. He goes to a fig tree. He's hungry. He sees nothing on it. Bam! He curses it. He curses this fig tree. It says, let nothing ever grow on you again. What does this mean, Pastor David? What's Jesus talking about here? Well, there's actually two interpretations of this, fig tr- of this account with a fig tree. And I want to give you both interpretations because I think both are biblical and both are, are accurate. and can, Both can be viewed. The first interpretation of this uh, fig tree is it is Israel's failure to produce fruit of repentance and faith towards the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, back in the Old Testament, Israel is referred to as a fig tree. In Jeremiah chapter 24, Jeremiah 8.13, in Micah 4.4, I want to give you a little example. Uh, Hosea 9.10 says this, I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your fathers as the first fruits on the fig tree. In its first season. So under this first interpretation, he's, this is a picture, him cursing this fig tree, is a picture of what is going to happen to Israel. Now, last week we studied the Gospel of Matthew, but the triumphal entry also is recorded in the other Gospels. And listen to what Luke's Gospel says. This is, this is Monday morning we're looking at. Listen to what happened less than 24 hours prior. In Luke chapter 19, verses 41 through 44, just the day before, it says, Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. 
For the day will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, enclose you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. So Luke's gospel tells us that Jesus wept. He wept over Israel's failure to repent and believe and turn to him. And then in the, God, in the account of Luke, Jesus goes on to predict the judgment that would befall them approximately 38 years after this moment in 70 AD when Titus and the Romans will come in and level Jerusalem. They will flatten it because of their rejection of the Messiah. Now we also know that this is the beginning of the time of the Gentiles. So basically Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11 says that God has placed Israel on the shelf and he's established the Gentile church age. And one day he's going to turn his attention back to the nation of Israel. But until then, we are living in the church age or the age of, of grace. So that's one interpretation is that the fig tree being cursed is a prophetic picture by the Lord Jesus to his disciples, to us through the scripture, of what's going to happen to the nation of Israel. But there's a second interpretation that I put equal with this interpretation. I like it both, and I, I'll teach them both. And the second interpretation is this is a warning. This is a warning to all believers against a fruitless Christian life. But this is a warning against professing faith in Christ, but your life does not reflect it, okay? I pull this from Luke chapter 13, verses 5 through 7, where Jesus says, I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he also spoke this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. Then he said to the keeper of the vineyard, Look, for three years I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down. Why does it use up the ground? So this cursing of the fig tree here in the Gospel of Matthew is a warning to the disciples, to the church, and to you and me against a fruitless Christian life. Jesus does not ask you to turn from sin. He commands you to turn from sin. It is not optional. With the Holy Spirit's help, we leave the world of lies. We leave the world of stealing. We leave the world of immorality. And here's the cool thing about it. The Holy Spirit does it in us. He gives us a new heart, a new desire. He gives us the ability to be discipled. He gives us the ability to be in fellowship, to be in church, so that we can grow in our walk with Christ. I'm not saying we're all perfect. Nobody here is perfect. You're not perfect. I'm not perfect. But God expects us to show the fruit of repentance and the fruit of growing in Christ. Each day throughout our entire life, we're moving closer and closer to Christ. And when the Holy Spirit puts his finger on a sin in your life, what do we do? We don't say, well, your grace is sufficient. We say, I repent. 
And the Holy Spirit uses that repentance to cleanse our hearts. The, it, it, it's, it, I mean, it's, it's called repentance. The Greek word is metanoia. It means, the, and this is straight out of Vine's Expository Dictionary. I quote from Vine's Expository Dictionary, repentance, metanoia. It means a change of mind that involves both, it says in there, both a turning from sin and a turning to God. See, it's not just enough to have one or the other. You know, when we turn from sin, you got to turn to something, okay? And when we turn from sin, we turn to Christ. We turn to the Holy Spirit, and he gives us new life. And he gives us the power and the ability to even repent itself. He leads us to his grace and to his mercy. You know, it's once you become a Christian, that's when the battle begins. That's when the, 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 the heart surgeries begin. As the Holy Spirit begins to work on your heart and work on your life and show you areas of your life that you need to repent of and that you need a heart change. And he will help you do this. So, how are you doing? How are you doing this morning in the area of repentance? Matthew chapter 7 verse 20 says, Jesus said, therefore you shall know them by their fruit. Now, I'm just preaching to you what I was preaching to myself this week in, in my study, in my home, as I was studying the word of God. And I was asking myself, David, does the fruit of my life, what does it point to? Does the fruit of my life point to the world? Does the fruit of my life point to myself? Or does the fruit of my life point to Jesus? That's the essence and the heart of what repentance is. It, 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 it is a turning from sin and, and, and fighting against temptation, but it's also us reflecting more of Christ in our life, okay? It's, it's a, some scholars like to debate whether it's, it's a change of mind or it's, it's a change of action. I say it's both. It's both. It is a change of mind um, of believing in Christ, but it's also a change of mind towards sin, and we turn to our deliverer, the Lord Jesus Christ, and by the power of his Holy Spirit, he comes into our life, and he sets us free. That is repentance. So that's the second one. The first one of the, the fig tree, uh, uh, for those taking notes, is one is a picture of Israel's failure to produce fruit. And secondly, it's a warning to all believers against a fruitless Christian life. Let's continue in our verse-by-verse -verse study. Verse 20, he says, And when the disciples saw it, they marveled. They were like, whoa, this Jesus, man, he's got power. They, they, their, their jaws dropped. They're like, wow. And they needed this encouragement because as they're going to Jerusalem, remember they, tra they, they traveled 15 miles from Jericho, this long road. Jesus challenged them with a lot of sayings that we studied a couple weeks ago. They needed this encouragement. They needed to see the power and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, and they said, how did the fig tree wither away so soon? So Jesus answered and said to them, assuredly, in other words, when he says assuredly, in other words, you can bank on this. Take this to the bank. You can count on this truth. He says, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt. I want to stop right there. I want to stop right there and ask two questions. What is faith 
And, and what is doubt that Jesus mentions here in verse 21? Well, faith is, Hebrews 11, 1, the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Faith is not a feeling, okay? Faith, let me repeat that. Faith is not a feeling. Faith is not an emotion. It's not a warm fuzzy in our, in our heart as much as I like those warm fuzzies. That's not what faith is. Faith is believing, trusting, and holding to Jesus and holding to the word of God in this turbulent world where all kind of things are happening around us. And through the storm, we're saying, Lord, I'm holding on to you. I'm holding on to you. I'm holding on to your word. I'm fighting. I'm wrestling. I'm being pulled to the left. I'm being pulled to the right. But at the end of the day, I'm holding on to you. That's what faith is. That's what faith is. And then doubt. Uh, he says, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, what is doubt? Well, first of all, let's say what doubt is not. Doubt is not the absence of questions, okay? Doubt is not the absence of questions. We all have questions. There, there's things that we wrestle with in our mind, things that we wrestle with in our mind about this world, about theology, about the Word of God. We, we wrestle, we all are wrestling and trying to figure out some areas of our life, even when it comes to understanding God's Word. But doubt is wrestling in our minds that shakes our foundation to the point we don't trust in the Word of the Lord or we don't trust in God. You can have doubt, okay? You can wrestle with things. But in the midst of that wrestling, in the midst of that confusion, you just, you just dig down deep and you say, Lord, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to follow you. And I know, Lord, at some point in the future, it might be tomorrow, it might be a week, I'm going to pursue it, Lord, and I'm going to go wholeheartedly after it, but you're going you're gonna to clear it up and you're going to make the blue skies again and help me see it clearly. Faith is fighting through doubt. Faith is resisting unbelief. You know, we are prone to error. You are prone to error. I am prone to error. But what we need is faith. And faith is not a feeling, not an emotion. It's a trust and a belief that's grounded squarely in the word of God. Amen? Let's continue on verse 21. Halfway through verse 21. He says, in, You will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but also if you say to this mountain, oh, I love this. But if you say to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, it will be done. So what are the mountains? You know, uh, I don't know if you've ever gone on a camping trip and seen a big mountain and read this verse and say, okay, Lord, can you move that mountain? I don't know if you've ever tried it or not, but it doesn't work. Okay, so what is he talking about here? Mountains. We have no account in scripture where the disciples change the geography of the land. Okay, so Jesus is not saying that you can go out here and speak to a big mountain and cause it to go jump into the Atlantic Ocean. That's not what he's saying here. Mountains in the context of this passage are things in your life that are impossible for you to change. Let me repeat that. Mountains are things in your life that are impossible for you to change. Something that you feel hopeless in your ability to change. 
What sin in your life appears to be an impossible mountain to conquer? There's sometimes there's things in life, sin, things that are wrong, things that are bad, we just say, we chalk it up and just say, we just accept it as a way of life. And God says, I can move that mountain. I can move that mountain that you're facing. What sin in your life appears to be an impossible mountain to conquer? Is it pornography? Is it immorality? Is it drugs? Is it alcohol? Is it addiction? Well, I got good news. I got, well, kind of bad news and good news. The bad news is you can't move it. The good news is God can. God can move it. God will move that mountain if you will commit your life to following him with all your heart. I'm not talking about this surface Christianity, this lighthearted, just lip service to God. I'm talking where you say, God, come hell or high water, I am taking the bulls by the rain, and I am going to serve you all the days of my life. I'm going to study the word of God. I'm going to pray in the spirit. I'm going to pursue you with all my heart. I am giving you everything. And I believe it's when when we get into that position, at least it was for me. You know, I stand before you today as your pastor. But I also stand before you today as a sinner saved by grace. And God has moved many, many mountains in my life. Some of them I don't want to share just because they bring shame. But whether it was the immorality, the lying, the stealing, the drug addiction. Yeah, the drug addiction. All the things that... There was one point in my life, there was this one area in my life where I just chalked it up. I am going to die from this. I, I, I had this addiction, and I loved it so much, and I was not willing to give it up. I did not want to give it up. And I just chalked it up in my mind, well, this will be the, probably the thing that one day takes my life. Because I, I, I felt helpless. I tried over and over and over again. But the problem was I was trying And I wasn't giving it over to God. And today, uh, 13 years later, I am free. I am free. Because I pursued God with all my heart and I yielded my life to him. And he can do the same no matter what struggle or sin or place you find yourself. God can move and he still moves mountains. He still moves mountains. Let's continue, verse 22. And whatever things you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. You know, the key to answer prayer is simply this. It's being grounded in the word of God. It's being led by the Holy Spirit. When you are grounded in the word of God, you will know what is appropriate to ask for and what is not appropriate to ask for. God is not a genie in a bottle that we can ask for anything our greedy, carnal minds can think up. That's not what he's saying here, that we can just ask for anything. You know, when we ask with a right heart and a right motive, God delights in answering prayer. Do you know that? God delights in answering prayer, but our hearts have to be in the right place, 
okay? We have to ask with the right motives. We have to be led by the Spirit. We have to have the right heart and the right motives, and God delights in answering his children's prayer. And when, we're, when we have the right heart, we have the right motive, you know, we can have confidence that we're asking in accordance with God's will, that he will move mightily, he might direct us, he might give us instruction, but God delights in moving. We don't have this, um, this deist view of God, that God is just way off, far away in some distant galaxy, and here we are on earth. He's way up there in heaven, and we're here on earth, and we're, we're just led to ourselves. No, that's not the way it works. The Bible says, in him we live and move and have our being. He is here in this room by his Holy Spirit. And so we need to be reverent, respectful, to stand in all of his presence. But we also need to worship we also need to get into the Word and say, Holy Spirit, speak as Pastor David's teaching as we're studying the Word. But then also when it comes time for prayer, we need to pray in faith. We need to pray in faith according to God's will, according to what the Word says. And ask God to move mountains because he will do it. Verse, that was verse 22 on prayer. Verse 23, and when he came into the temple... The chief priests and the elders of the people confronted him as he, was, as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? So remember, Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. He's coming into their territory. They don't like it. He is asserting his authority. Authority means the one who is in charge, the one who makes the rules, uh, who's right and wrong. And Jesus is asserting his authority there in Jerusalem. And they don't like it. Question for you. Who or what is the authority for your life? How do you determine what is right and wrong? How do you determine who is in charge? Friends and family, we do it. We, we believe God is in charge. The Lord Jesus Christ is in charge. And his word is the ultimate and final authority. And this is, this is the... the um, the Pharisees are not liking this. So Jesus is going to challenge them. Let's continue, verse 24. But Jesus answered and said to them, I also will ask you one thing, which, if you tell me, I likewise will tell you about what authority I do these things. Verse 25. The baptism of John, where was it from? From heaven or from men? And they reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe in him? But if we say from men... We fear the multitude for, for all count John as a prophet. So they neither, excuse me, so they answered Jesus and said, we do not know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Here, they're just trying to get into an argument with Christ. They're trying to sidetrack him. They're trying to assert their authority over the, the Son of God. And here in this passage right here, as we see this conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders, we see the difference between true godly leaders and religious leaders. Because that's what we have here. Religious leaders, and this applies to today too. This applies 2,000 years ago. This applies today. Religious leaders bow to the pressure of people and popular opinion. And they tell you what you want to hear. What do, the, what do people want to hear about? Well, that's what we're going to talk about. 
What's going to make them happy? Well, we're going to talk about what makes them happy. Not so with a godly leader. Not so with a godly leader. A godly leader bows to the authority of Jesus Christ and tells people, tells you what God's word says. Godly leaders bow to the authority of Christ. And we all need to be godly leaders. We all need to be under his authority as we witness to this world. And we tell them what what is right, what is wrong, what is truth, and what is error. Because we all fall under the authority, not of the world, but of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the final authority. He is the supreme ruler. Verse 28. But Jesus is speaking here. But what do you think? Okay, he's starting a new, this is a new parable here. Uh, this is a new parable he's, he's, he's going to go into. Verse 28. But what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. And he answered and said, I will not. But after it, afterwards, he regretted it and went. Boy, this, this, these two verses right here, they so remind me of my conversion in 1992. The two years leading up to my conversion to Christ, I had people witnessing to me, people sharing the gospel with me, but I did not like, in my carnal mind, I did not like the change that was going to have to take place in my life in order to follow Christ. I knew enough about Christianity that if I gave my life to Christ, I got to give up this sin, this sin, this sin, this sin, this sin, this sin. And David was like, "Uh uh-uh. I am not ready to give that up. I would not, I'd heard the gospel. I even felt the call of God on my life. I, I, used to, I used to lay my head on my pillow at night. Drunk or sober, I would lay my head on my pillow at night. And every single night, now lay me down to sleep. Pray, Lord, I'm so lucky if I die for a week. But in Jesus name, amen. Anybody remember that prayer? It's a, it's a common prayer. Because every night, I had this fear in my heart that my heart was going to give out and I was going to step into eternity and I would not go to heaven, but I would go to hell. And for some reason, in my, in my ignorance, I thought that little Hail Mary prayer would help me out. But I felt, I felt the Savior calling me. I felt the Lord calling me to himself. But my love for sin kept me from complete surrender. And it wasn't until the spring of 1992 in the Navy at a church in Virginia that I, that I, I just broke down. The floodgate, the, 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 the rebellion, the fight, it just fell. And I prayed to receive Christ that morning and surrendered my life to him. But, I re, but, but going back to this verse, verse 29 says, he answered and said, I will not. That was me. I was like, oh, no, 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 I don't want that Christianity stuff. No, thank you. No, 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 no. I, I, like, I like my lifestyle. But afterwards, verse 29, he regretted it and went. He regretted it. He repented. He turned his life around. And he offers that same forgiveness to all people, no matter where they're at in life, whether they're a newborn or they're on their deathbed. If they will just turn to Christ, he will give them that new heart. Uh, let's, let's continue with the parable. Verse 30. Then he came to the second and said likewise. And he answered and said, I go, sir, but he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? It is obvious there. They, they said the first. Jesus said to them, 
Assuredly, I say to you that tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But tax collectors and harlots believed him when you saw it. You did not afterwards relent and believe in him. You know, this is such a beautiful statement here. It tells you who Christ came for. Not the fact that he came for the, for the, for the um, harlots and the tax collectors, which he did come for them, but he came for people that are humble, people that are broken in spirit, people who are broken by their sin, and they understand the grace of God, and they understand the freedom. That's why they enter the kingdom before religious people will. Because religious people say, well, I've got a religion, but that religion doesn't equate into a changed life of following Christ. People that understand their sin and their deplorable, wretched state will enter the kingdom easier than religious people because they understand their sin. Religious people trust in steeples, traditions, and church membership, not Christians. We trust in Jesus. So many people today believe they are saved because their name is on a church membership roll. Can I give you, just give you some pastoral counsel, some pastoral advice? There's only one membership book your name needs to be written in, and it is the Lamb's Book of Life. And if your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, who cares about a church membership role? And that your name being written in the Lamb's Book of Life, it comes by being born again and trusting in Christ. Amen? All right, let's look at our final parable this morning. We're we're making some headway. We're making some headway. We know we don't get through this much scripture, but I I felt led. We want to hit one more parable. Uh, The parable of the wicked vine dressers is what you're your Bible probably says. Verse 33. Hear another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower. And he leased it to the vine dressers and went into a far country. Okay, here we have a parable. What are parables? They are, uh, uh, they are spiritual sayings with earthly meanings. They're meant to be understood simply but you have, to, you have to understand what each symbol represents. And here in verse 33, the landowner is God. The vineyard is the kingdom of God. And the vine dressers, as Jesus is speaking this, is Israel. Verse 34. Now when the vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit. And the vine dressers took his servants, beat one, killed one, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did likewise to them. So who are the servants? The prophets. The servants are the prophets. The prophets told Israel to repent, but they ignored the prophets. They persecuted the prophets. They hated the prophets. Let's continue. So so God sends the prophets. They reject the prophets. God is graceful. God is merciful. You know, he doesn't relent. He doesn't let up. Look at verse 37. We'll read verses 37 through 39. Then the last of all, then last of all, sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, 
This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. So who is the son? It is the Lord Jesus Christ. And Israel, the vine dresser, what did they do to the son? They persecuted the son. They hated the son. They, they rejected the son. And ultimately, in four days from now, they are going to crucify the son. The most shameful way of death in the first century was crucifixion. It wasn't just a, let's put him to death and let's stone him out back. No, let's take him outside the city on a hill called Golgotha where all people can see and let's completely humiliate him and give him a criminal's death. A death by crucifixion that was created by the Persians, perfected by the Romans, and it was meant to uh, uh, inflict the most serious pain possible is what happened to the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 40, he says, Therefore, when the owner of the vine vineyards come, what will he do to those vine dressers? They said to him, he will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to the other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits of their season. This is almost like in this verse right here, this is almost like a prophecy that they are speaking against themselves. In other words, I think for the moment, the religious leaders are coming to their senses and they're understanding this parable and they're speaking the truth for Christ. They're speaking the truth for Christ. When you get to verse 42 and 43, you're going to see the word you. Matter of fact, let's, let's go there. Verse 42. The, one, two, the sixth word there. You. Have you. Uh, Jesus said to them, have you never read the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. And look at the next verse, verse 43. Look at the fifth word. You, therefore I say to you, he's speaking to these guys, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to the nation bearing the fruits of it. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but whoever falls, it will grind him to powder. So here's what we see. Here's what we know. The nation of Israel rejected Jesus Messiah. Okay? 70 AD, Titus and the Romans came in, leveled Jerusalem, brought it into Judaism. But according to the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11, God has placed Israel on the shelf. They're kind of like in timeout. They're kind of like in timeout right now for the church age. But the next prophetic event on God's timetable, the next event that's going to happen, it could happen before I finish this message. It might not be for far off. We, no man knows the day or the hour, is the rapture of the church where Christ returns. And at the rapture of the church, when Jesus removes his bride from planet Earth, God is going to turn his attention back to the nation of Israel. It's called Daniel's 70th week. 
that was prophesied in Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. That 70th week of Daniel is basically the book of Revelation from chapter 4 to chapter 19, where he turns his attention back to the nation of Israel. He pours out his spirit, his spirit and Israel embraces their Messiah. But in this moment of this time, of this epic, this taking place when this was being spoken, Judgment is going to befall them for their rejection of Messiah. And notice verse 44. I love this verse. Verse 44 says, And whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but whomever whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. The choice before the religious leaders is the choice before you and I. It is the choice before every person. We can, you and I have two options, okay? You're gonna face one of these, okay? Bank on it, take it to the bank. Number one, we can be broken in humble surrender to Christ before God, or we can be completely broken on the day of judgment and be crushed. I don't know about you, but I wanna humbly submit to Christ today and fall under his tender mercies, and fall under his loving care, rather than fall under his judgment and wrath. God offers grace. God offers mercy. But there's a day of judgment coming. There is a day of judgment coming where every single person will be held accountable for every word, every action. Verse 45 and verse 46 um, I, just, I, just, I just saw this. I just noticed this. Look at the end of verse 45. I said, you know, this was like a prophetic word that he was, that the, the, the religious leaders were speaking against themselves. Look at the end of verse 40. Well, I'm gonna read verse 45, but look at the last three words. Now, when the chief priest and the Pharisees heard his parable, they perceived that he was what? Speaking of them. Whoa. It is the tensions are gonna skyrocket from here on. It's gonna culminate on Friday. They are gonna kill him, but they are, they are getting torqued. They are getting torqued, but Jesus doesn't let up. He speaks the truth in love. Verse 46, but when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitudes because they took him for a prophet. Again, they didn't have no convictions. They didn't have no convictions. They feared Christ, they feared the crowds. They need to figure out who they want to serve. The parable, this, this parable that we just read, the parable of the vine dresser, is a picture of Israel's soon rejection of Jesus. They were blinded by their sin, pride, and unbelief. Are you? Are you blinded by your sin? Am I blinded by my sin? Are we blinded? by our pride, by our unbelief. You know, part of coming to Christ, uh, I love this word, it's, it's a great word to describe salvation, is surrender. Is where you just fall on your knees, fall on the inside, and say, Lord Jesus, I surrender to you. Don't be caught by the deception of sin, pride, and unbelief. Thinking about the context of the passage, Jesus talking to the religious leaders. God sent them a prophet, Israel. 
they refused to listen. God sent them a king, they refused to submit. Finally, God sent his son and they nailed him to a tree. Very tragic, very sad, especially on their part. I believe on judgment day, and there's a judgment day coming, God in his grace and love and mercy will show every person that is not born again every opportunity they had to receive him before they are cast into everlasting destruction. God calls people to himself. He speaks to the world through creation. He speaks to the world and says, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me and you will find forgiveness of sin. Come to me and I will give you new life. God's willing that none should perish. God's willing that none should perish, but that all should come to him and to receive him as their Lord and Savior. Friends and family, those listening online, don't be like Israel. Don't walk in ignorance. Don't walk in deception. Don't walk in willful disobedience. God is no respecter of person. He cut them off. He can cut you off too. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. I didn't put this up on a slide, but please take note of it. See to it. And then, and then the author of Hebrews says, he inserts the word brothers and sisters. I'm an, I'm an eternal security guy, okay? I do not believe you can lose your salvation. But I believe that all scripture is inspired by God. And we have to bring it all together. And there has to be this balanced view uh, of, of our relationship with Christ. You know, it is all God's grace. But we have a responsibility to trust. We have a responsibility to respond to him. And Hebrews 3.12 says, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Please do not make a decision to ever turn away from Christ. He is so good. He is so merciful. He is so kind. He is so loving and awesome and beautiful, and magnificent. Think about it. Give me one good reason to turn away from Christ. I've thought about that question long and hard. And still to this day, I can't think of a good one. I cannot think of a good reason. There is no good reason to turn away from Christ. He's that good to us. You are the creation. He is the creator. You were made in this life to have a relationship with him. Enjoy that relationship with him. Love him. Obey him. And watch him work mightily in your life in holy surrender. In closing, walking in the vineyard of obedience was the title of my message. Walking in the vineyard of obedience means that you and I live and surrender to Jesus Christ. That's what living in the vineyard of obedience is. It's making Jesus and his word our final authority for life, as the scriptures talked about here. It's finding our place in God's kingdom and being fruitful in service. Therefore, go serve your king. Serve your family, serve your God, serve your community and live your life for his honor and his glory. And whoever the people that you're, that you're around, your friends, your coworkers, 
Show them the love, grace, and the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And let's work hard in his vineyards. Let's work from sunup to sundown. And when I say work from sunup to sundown in the vineyard, I'm talking about let's give all of our life for his honor and for his glory. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we have studied your word this morning. We've opened up the Bible and we've looked at your words. And Father, I pray right now and ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would work in our hearts. Please, Lord, do heart surgery on us. Please, Holy Spirit, change our affections, change our devotion, and change our hearts. And help us, Lord, to walk in the vineyard of obedience, live in the vineyard of obedience, and live for you in complete surrender. Lord, we love you. And it's for your glory. It's for your honor. Lord, we open our hearts to you and ask you to work. If you're here this morning and you need to do business with God, now's the time to do it. Now, during this closing song, if the Holy Spirit brings something to your mind, brings something to your heart, my hope and prayer this morning is that you'll get it right. That you'll get it right. Holy Spirit, we yield our hearts to you. With our heads bowed in prayer, Please change our hearts. We so desperately need it. Pour out your spirit. Let revival come. God, we desperately so need you so much. Please work in our hearts. If you're here this morning and you need special prayer, welcome to come up during worship and receive prayer or grab me or another leader after service and we'll be glad to pray with you but take God's word to heart and let it mold you and change you in Jesus' awesome name I pray all God's people said Amen